1 Peter, and then we will pray. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Father, thank You for this opportunity to examine such an astounding text and to consider how You, Father, Son, and Spirit, work together, plan, contrive together to accomplish our salvation. Please give us the clarity that we need in our minds. Clear away from us our distractions and the things that we bring into this room that cloud our judgment, that cloud our heart and cause great uh, concern or consternation, but that nonetheless detract from the glory that we must render to you in view of what you have done, even beginning before the foundation of the world. Please strengthen our unity today as we examine hard truths, glorious truths, encouraging truths, majestic truths that can impart both grace and peace to us. I pray that you would nonetheless unify us as a people. Please sanctify us. In these moments, in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we considered the idea or the heading of being elect exiles. That We are chosen by God, and we are also exiles. So we belong, in one sense, with God in heaven. We belong with God in relationship with Him, but nonetheless, we are here on earth. And as we are here on earth, we have been ejected by the world. They have rejected us. Even as they hated the Lord, they now hate us. The moment you as a Christian believe in Jesus Christ, there is an alienation that takes place between you and the world. You are no longer at home in that very moment. And you have never been at home since then. We are this new people of God, cobbled together by no other reason than that God has drawn us into this. But it's for a purpose. So Where we're going today, we're building on this word elect, and we're seeing how it is, and why it is, and to what end it is that we are, in fact, elect. I want you to notice the grammar. If you look closely at your Bible, this is how it works. To those who are elect, and beginning with the word exiles, on through the word Bithynia, depending on how your translation words it, is really a parenthesis. So it's those who are chosen, exiles in all these places, and then the rest of verse 2 explain or expound on the word elect. So For these first two verses, the word elect is the most important word. It is the hinge, if you will, that all the rest hangs on. And in many ways sets the tone for the rest of the book, the letter, as it were. So think of it this way. If you're not following along in the notes, here's what this flow is. It's a very 
simple outline, very, very simple, and it flows directly from the text, following the ESV's wording, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, elect in the sanctification of the Spirit, elect for obedience to Jesus Christ, and elect for sprinkling with His blood, and therefore, grace and peace are ours and can be multiplied to us. But first, before we dive into more speaking on the doctrine of election, we must discuss the priority of love in the body of Christ. It is highly irregular for me to read a passage right before we get into the exposition that has little to do, at least exegetically, with the text at hand. But I'm going to read one, at least, this morning. In the Revelation to John... Verses 1 through 7, we have the letter of our Lord Christ to the church in Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But this I have against you, that you have have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The church in Ephesus had a lot of theology right. They knew who was and who was not a genuine apostle. They tested them according to the truth, and they were able to render judgment accurately. They hated the works of the Nicolaitans. We don't know what the Nicolaitans thought. They may have been some Gnostic group. But the church in Ephesus, maybe along with some others, hated them so much that they hated them into oblivion. And we don't even know what they thought anymore. They hated them really good. They perhaps, however, were so busy loving being right and hating bad ideas that were really bad ideas. Jesus hates them too that they forgot to prioritize the love of brother and sister and the love of God. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 7, makes the same point. And to riff on the Apostle Paul in that passage, if I have a strong and firm conviction on the doctrines of election and predestination, for or against, but have not love, I am nothing. And my theology is worthless. When we focus on perceived errors of our brothers and sisters too much, the priority of love is lost. We have to call sin, sin, and we have to call error, error, right? The Ephesian church shouldn't stop calling false apostles false and hating the works of the Nicolaitans. However, it has saddened me that a doctrine that is meant to be the ground, the very foundation of our peace and our receiving divine help is the very place where bickering and fighting and not assuming the best and name-calling can happen. 
And I'm talking about both sides at this point. I think most of you now, or at least those of you who are members or attenders here, know what my theological leanings on these matters are regarding election. But I've been just treated so, so poorly in the past by those who disagree. At seminary, I was the boogeyman that these deep, deep South Southern Baptists were told about, that they would run into. And it was very often me being oppressed, in some sense, by 10 to 15 other people who were just aghast. But I know, brothers, it is true of our side, is it not? And it is more a shame in our case. And I have said this before, a doctrine and persuasion about the overwhelming fullness of the grace and love of God should result in us being the most loving, the most gracious, the most patient, the most kind, the most long-suffering people to those who are in disagreement and towards people in general. And so at this point, you may be asking, then why in the world are we talking about it? (laughs) If it has been the context, the battleground of such divisiveness, and it has for some time, why even address it? We could just skip over it, maybe. I know you know that I won't let us do that. But I want to say a few things in answer to that question. Why spend so much time on it? Essentially, two sermons addressing this. Number one, the problem is not the doctrine itself that has caused the disunity. It's us. Proof of this, I think, is seen that bitterness, when there is disagreement, can abound in any issue. Just name it. Creation, marriage roles. Just go down the list of anything that might be considered hot a hot topic or a hot-button issue, and if someone disagrees with you, you are led to think ill of them. Number two, the issue and the doctrine also matter because they're right here on the page. We will see where some of the disagreement rests, but we just can't skip over it and feel like we've covered it by saying one or two statements about it. I can't give you a a 10-minute, 30-minute geography lesson about these different Christians in all these different places around Asia Minor and not address what is the main point of the text that he's writing to exiles that are elect according to the foreknowledge of God and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. This is who he is addressing. But they're here for your grace and your peace. So that they will be multiplied to you. So how unkind, how motivated by the fear of man would I be as a pastor if I just brushed over these things quickly and did not show you the soul-steadying truth that is there. If I withheld from you the multiplying of your grace and peace. And I am convinced that at least part of the reason that we struggle with anxiety, myself included, is that we do not have a full embrace of the delight of being the elect of God, the chosen people of God. I hope, this is to those of you who are members or long-term attenders, I hope that I have demonstrated to you, many of you for now three years, that I'm trying to say just what the text says. And obviously no less than what the text says. I want to show you my work as much as I can. I'm not willy-nilly changing the game here. 
and trying to bind your conscience to something that is not in the text. I don't want to do that. And I think, not to put it too strongly, I've labored in such a way to merit some level of trust from you. You must search the Scriptures to see if what I'm saying is true. But as Paul encourages Timothy, I think it's possible to labor or work diligently to show yourself as one approved, rightly handling the word of truth with no need to be ashamed. I think that's possible. Even as we come to difficult things. And then three, this is the third reason why we can't avoid this. We as a church actually have a doctrine of election. This is in the Baptist faith in message 2000. Here is article five, at least the first half. Election is the gracious purpose of God according to which he regenerates justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. It is consistent with the free agency of man and comprehends all the means in connection with that end. It is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness, and it is infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeable. It excludes boasting and promotes humility. So, we have it. As a doctrine, I want to clarify one last thing before we jump in. I said last week, you must have a doctrine of election. And we say as a church and as Baptists that God's election is consistent with the free agency of man. And that is where there is room for debate and disagreement. How is it the the case? And how is it so that God's election is consistent with the free agency of man? But... Differences of opinion about what that means and how that works does not change that God elects. He chooses. We are, as the bride of our Lord Jesus Christ, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father. Elect in the sanctification of the Spirit. Elect for obedience to Jesus Christ. And elect for sprinkling with His blood. So let's look at the first of these. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And I want to make a note of God the Father. I want to make a note about that statement, God the Father. I mentioned this last Sunday night as we discussed the message. God is introduced to us in 1 Peter almost exclusively, I can't find an exception to this, as it relates to Jesus Christ. He is revealed as Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is very important for your Christianity. You do not know God generally. You can have no access to the God who is there directly unless what you mean is directly through Jesus Christ. He insists now to be known only in and through the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. He's revealed as Father. Who is the one true God? The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means. That narrows the way, understand. People can say they believe in God all they want. But if your approach to Him, if your availing of yourself of His benefits or however you would think about your being spiritual, if it is not in and through the person of Jesus Christ and His work, you don't know God. We need to help people understand that. So just a reminder as to the grammar, this is how it's working. The, the word elect is the key, the hinge, and it follows through to each of these statements about how it is. The modifiers are all in verse 2. Now, this is where the rub is. What does foreknowledge mean? What is foreknowledge? As we are elect, we are chosen according to it. So meaning that in some sense, this foreknowledge, whatever it is, is deeper, more causal, 
The foreknowledge, in some sense, causes the election. When God is the subject, the word as a noun and a verb is used five times in the New Testament. One in Acts, twice in Romans, and twice in 1 Peter. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Romans 11, verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And then our text today, and then 1 Peter 1, 20 through 21. He, referring to Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So this is not the only, these are not the only five places in the Bible where the concept of election or predestination, or foreknowledge, God's knowing, are addressed. There are other words. There are more words in that bucket. But we're dealing with this one today. So what does foreknow or foreknowledge mean? It's, it's actually a simple word. All it means is to know beforehand. That's in the verb form. And in the noun form, it means something like this. Long-standing knowledge, or a very old and intimate knowledge. So that's what it means, but that doesn't help us a whole lot. I mean, you can even render that from the English that's there. So what is foreknown? What is the thing that is foreknown? That's the question. It says, according to his foreknowledge, but what is, what is the thing, what is the object of this knowledge? There, this is another place where there is disagreement. And I'm going to list them. I don't have time to explain them or address them all. Um, I was planning to but I got up to around 10, 11 pages, so I'm not going to make you do that. So uh, one of the first is uh, the idea of answering the question, what is foreknown? What does God know in advance beforehand that then leads to election? The answer, number one, is that God knows a future event. In this view, God looked into the future and saw who would, in fact, trust Jesus and chose them. The second way to think about God's foreknowledge is that God knows a hypothetical. So this this one is a little bit more complex. It's similar to the first, but it is different. In this view, God again looks into the future, but he plays out different versions of history to see who would respond positively if the gospel were presented to them. And then he ensures, based on those who would respond, that he would get the gospel message to them and they would believe. So his choosing to do that is what they mean by election. There's another, a third way of of thinking of it, a plan. In this view, what is foreseen or foreknown is a path that God wants everyone to be on, but he chooses the plan for us and foreknows that plan. So that's what he knows in advance, and he then invites people to join into that foreknown path of salvation. And for these previous three views, there are different permutations, slight variations, and I'm sure there are more, but those are the main ones that you'll run into to explain what foreknowledge is. I want to be very clear here. I am not, as your pastor or in any capacity of spiritual authority over you, saying that you can't hold those views. 
I want to be fair to them. I was going to try and, you know, you're not supposed to just defeat straw men. You're supposed to give a clear articulation of your opponent's arguments in the best version of them. So I'm not just sweeping past them because I don't think they're worth addressing. We just don't have time. I think they're wrong, but they're not a violation of our church doctrinal statement, and I don't judge or look down on you for thinking any of them. And understand, I would much rather you be a loving, humble follower of Jesus than to have all of this figured out and agree with me. Those aren't mutually exclusive, hopefully. Hopefully we can pursue being of one mind and we can be loving at the same time. But if we had to choose, and unfortunately sometimes we do, I would rather you be loving and humble. Again, we could just think of 1 Corinthians 13, right? What does it matter if we got it all figured out, if we don't love our brother? Kind of invalidate our witness anyway? Now, I as your friend, not in a capacity of spiritual authority over you in any sense, or as your pastor is going to critique that, but I as your friend and your brother may try to show you how much more joy and peace and grace can be yours. And a multiplying of all those things can be yours if you embrace the answer I'm about to give. And again, I hope you can understand that what's at stake here is not just some nuanced debate about some odd, nuanced, sidelined doctrinal issue. We are right up against the very mystery of God with this question. What does God foreknow when the Bible speaks about this this way? I think it is clear that in the places this word is used, that what is foreknown is a person or persons. If you want to look back up, or I know I didn't give them to you in the handout, in the five different places where this is used, Jesus is the one who is foreknown. And then in Romans 8, whom he foreknew. And then in Romans 11, to whom he foreknew, and then in Peter 1, 20 through 21, Jesus was foreknown. It seems that when the Holy Spirit inspires a biblical author to use this word where God is the subject, that the object of the foreknowledge is a person or persons, a group of people or individuals. He knows the future. He knows all future events. I'm not saying he doesn't know that. But this word isn't used to talk about that. Let me just say very clearly, yes, he knows everything that will happen in the future. The knowledge of God, brothers and sisters, is not only limitless, it is unfathomably great. He Understand this. He doesn't have to use his mental powers to answer the question, what would happen if... He already knows it. And he already knows the answer to that question in every possible form that could be asked. Hypotheticals upon hypotheticals. Every line of every possible event in every hypothetical universe in the future. He knows all of it right now. You cannot hide anything from him. Stand in awe of your God, brothers and sisters.
And if you do not believe in Christ today, dear friend, because he knows all that, you can't shock him with your sin either. He knows what you would do if presented with the opportunity. He knows what's in your heart. You can't shock him. He knows you better than you do. So come to him. Find grace and forgiveness from the person who knows you better than yourself. So, he knows the future. He knows all future events. He knows all hypothetical future events. But when the Bible uses this word... It's not talking about that. When, God talks, when the Bible talks about God's knowledge of the future, it actually uses the word, words sight or declaring or revealing. And I wish I could read to you all the passages that speak of that. Uh, Job 28, 24, Hebrews 4, 13, 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9, Isaiah 46, 8 through 11, Proverbs 15, 3, Zechariah 4, 10, and Psalm 139. When it talks about his understanding and knowledge of the future, it's usually speaking about sight. And also, I, I, this word here, this foreknow, it speaks, like I said, when it's especially used in a noun form, which it is in our text, according to the foreknowledge of God, it speaks of long-term or intimate knowledge of something or someone. And I think this is shown from one of the examples where this word is used where God is not the subject. So in Acts... Chapter 26, verse 5, when Paul is making his defense, this is what he says. They have known for a long time. That's literally the word foreknow. They have foreknown, and the, the NIV renders it this way. They have known me for a long time and can testify. Or they have foreknown me. They understand what my life has been like. They've been intimately familiar with the details of my raising and my time in Judaism. And as a Pharisee, they know it all. So they should be here to speak if they would. That's the sense. And that's the testimony elsewhere in Scripture. It's not just that God knows things about someone, but that He has been the initiator in the relationship and he has drawn near to know individuals or the opposite in the case of the wicked. Here's how Jeremiah, uh, the prophet Jeremiah records it as words from the Lord. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And then Matthew 7, verse 23, the opposite side of it. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Not to say that Jesus didn't know of these people, didn't know their names. He knows all things. Nothing can be hidden from him. But at the final judgment, the determining factor of whether or not you are welcomed in or not, as an evaluation of their life, is I never knew you. That's the sense. It's intimate. You can think of Old Testament examples where this word know is used in a very intimate setting. So, that's what foreknowledge means, I think. Again, there are other views, but that's what I think is most consistent with how the word is used in Scripture. Now, the question is also, when? When were these persons foreknown? For God, I think it can only mean in eternity past before the foundation of the world. Here are two examples in Scripture where this is pretty clear. Ephesians 1, verse 4, even as He chose us in Him, so there's, there's the idea of election, 
before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. And then in the Revelation to John, verse thir- uh, chapter 13, verse 8, And all who dwell on the earth shall worship it, referring to the beast. Everyone whose name was not written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So the time, if we can speak of it that way, that God foreknows these individuals is before time began, before the foundation of the world, before any of it got started. So, you might be wondering, how in the world is this consistent with the free agency of man? I, th- I want to give you this sentence, and I think it may, it may be better than it sounds at first hearing. You are free to do whatever you want, and God is free to change what you want by His Spirit. I think if you, if you meditate and mull over that, especially comparing that with certain texts, I think it works to explain these things. It might not satisfy everyone, but I think it makes sense. Here's an illustration of this concept. Have you ever heard a couple bickering about who liked who first? I've heard some of you argue about this. Who noticed who first? Who was drawn to the other first? Who was initiating and who... Who did the hard work of winning and wooing the other person over? Is it overly offensive to say that God cares about winning that argument? I don't think so. I don't think it even cheapens our love for Him to say that the love that we have for Him was all due to Him and His initiation. To stretch the analogy just a little bit, If he had not pursued and wooed us and chipped away at our rebellious hearts of stone by his love and kindness, we would have never noticed him or been interested in a relationship with him at all, but would have remained his enemies. That's the idea. He has set his love on us from before the foundation of the world through his foreknowledge. Now, the question of does he pursue everyone in the exact same way? Or is his pursuit ultimately resistible? Those are questions where I'm completely fine if you disagree with me and we're not going to address those today. And I would say fairly that at some level he does pursue everyone. You can see that in Romans 1. He makes clear who he is through the creation. And you are completely free and in your rights, such as they are, to reject God if you want to. If you want to, you can. But I'm thankful, and this is why I'm commending this view to you, though not insisting, that God ensures by His Spirit that those He has given to the Son will inevitably turn to Christ in love and willing embrace of His pursuit. I don't know if I plan to say this again further in the notes, but I feel like I need to say it now. If he had left this to ourselves, no one would be saved. And if he did not do the work of overcoming our rebellion at some level, we wouldn't notice him. We would not be warmed to his affection. So, elect also in the sanctification of the Spirit. So that was all about foreknowledge. 
might be looking at the clock and feeling some level of concern because we have a lot of ways to go, but we had to spend the majority, uh, much time on foreknowledge because that's where the debate rests in many ways. Now, this statement, elect in the sanctification of the Spirit, begins to answer the question of how it is, how it is that God's election, according to his foreknowledge before the foundation of the world, begins to show itself in real time. What happens in real time as a result of God's election? Well, that person begins to will and do according to the work of God in us. This is how Paul speaks about it in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, regarding even in the life of a believer. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in, as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. The Spirit is active in setting us apart for the work of God. And I think that's the meaning that we should take the idea of sanctification. It does not only mean purity of action on our part, doing God's will, but it also means being set apart for that very thing, consecrated for the purposes of God. Both holiness and consecration. It's almost, I I should rather say, it is always, I think, often a criticism of the view that I've been committing that this seems arbitrary, random, or like a heavenly lottery ticket. And if it were only God the Father at work in His foreknowledge before the foundation of the world, then you would be right. But God the Father's election according to his own foreknowledge, as mysterious and as controversial and hard to swallow as that may be, yet works itself out in real time by the Spirit. So it is not arbitrarily set. God's election on the basis of his foreknowledge sets things in motion. It plays out in real time. And the primary player, the one who brings to pass the dictates of the unchangeable decrees of God, is the Spirit. The most misunderstood person in the Bible. If I've not already lost you through offending you, uh, understand that this choosing is not an automatic thing. I want to be very clear here. It would be impossible for this to happen, but understand what I'm saying. If the Father elected according to His foreknowledge, and the Spirit and the Son did nothing in line with that, then no one would be saved. It has to bear out in real time by the Spirit to consecrate and sanctify you, or else the dictates of God's election and foreknowledge mean nothing. You must stand in awe, right? This is, the, this is the main gist of this text, that it is all of God, every person in the Trinity, working hard together, moving heaven and earth to save you. You must stand in awe of the perfect unity of their purpose, of His purpose. So what is the sanctification of the Spirit? And how are we elect in it, right? That's how the preposition works in this statement. Elect in the sanctification of the Spirit. What does that mean? I think there are two passages of Scripture we could turn to very quickly to see this. The first is Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5. You don't have to turn there. You can jot it down and research it in a bit. Let me read it for you. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you. How? 
Paul, can you know as a person that God has chosen us? Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. That is the evidence. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. That's how Paul knows that God has chosen them before all time in the hidden counsels of God. Because you responded to the gospel. You responded with full conviction in the spirit. Conviction for the truth of the gospel and conviction to repent of sin. And also, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9-11. through 11, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. This is what He does to accomplish the dictates of God's election from before all time. According to His foreknowledge, the Spirit comes and invades your life to consecrate you to the service of God through personal holiness and through love of one another. Being chosen by God is not a random act of God's inscrutable will just to pick some for heaven and pass over others. The first and foremost Result of this mysterious act of God is to be holy. So, just throw that in the mix in your fairness evaluation of God's actions. A lot of people may want the benefits of heaven and eternal life and to escape hell, but many of those may not be very interested in living a holy life. But that's what we're elect for. Heaven is just at the end. What we are voluntold to as the people of God is nothing less than a crucifixion of the flesh and dying to self and being a slave of the righteousness of God. That is painful. That is arduous. And it is so, so costly. But it is so, so worth it. But I promise you, it doesn't seem that way to the natural person. You just see this in 1 Corinthians 1. The natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit because they are spiritually discerned. This is why we cannot present union with Christ as something that just speaks of eternal benefits in heaven. It means obedience now. Costly. Painful. You might have to die. And every day you'll have to die to yourself. You want that? You may want the other benefits of election, but can you really blame God with being unfair if you don't really want to live a holy and pure and loving life before Him for His slave forever? This is what the Spirit does. He works in us, giving us a new heart. This is a great and precious promise of the new covenant. I will write my law on their hearts. I will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh so that you will want to do the commands of God so that we will of our own will and out of joy serve Him. Now, the question is, can we do that without the Spirit? 
Can we even want to do the will of God and want a heart that would want to do the will of God on our own? I can understand why some of you may want me to say yes, but as much as I struggle myself to have the right set of motivations in doing the right thing and to avoid the motivations to do the wrong thing, I know that to have that right set of affections and will and motive is all of God. This is what Paul means when he says, what do you have that you did not receive? No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. It is God, the Spirit, who works in us both to will and to do His good pleasure. It must be you. It must be your will to obey God. It must be from your volition that you believe in Him. But can you get to that place without the sanctification of the Spirit? I say no. I'm not trying to bludgeon you if you disagree. I just... Knowing myself and being painfully aware of where I still need to grow, I just, I can't see it. Can't see it. Elect for obedience to Christ. So if it was clear enough with the sanctification of the Spirit, here's how the verse literally would be rendered. Elect into obedience and sprinkling with the blood of Jesus Christ. That point that we were talking about, about being set apart for the service of God, becomes even more clear. Obedience to Jesus. That puts a much, much finer point on what it means to be a Christian and what Christianity is than just believing in God and believing there's a place for you in glory one day. The Christian life is obedience to Jesus Christ from faith. And obedience even covers the idea of faith. Coming to Him and believing in Him as He commands us, following in His dictates and His teaching as He commands us, this is what we are elect to. This is clearly, as it's worded in the text, setting for us the end goal of election. And this is highly clarifying and a corrective for seeing God's election as unfair. You are not just a random few who hit the jackpot of a heavenly blessing. You are being conscripted like a draft to enter the service of the Lord and more specifically for obedience to Jesus Christ. See, the benefits of heaven, benefits of salvation like heaven, the sweet by and by, and eternal life are not just doled out like a t-shirt gun at a concert, right? Not like a, like a bingo game or, or bread being thrown into the stands of the Colosseum. No, the benefits of salvation, eternal life, heaven, and a place with God are on the far side of the sanctification of the Spirit and obedience to Jesus Christ. There's no other way. This is super, super clear in Romans 8, verses 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justifies, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. The purpose of this is to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. That's the goal. That's why you are saved. 
We can speak about salvation in terms of redemption or restoration or getting things back to where they should be. And those, those are fine and true, but they're very, very vague. Salvation, the purposes of God, is nothing less than conforming you, His people, into the image of Jesus Christ. And it has always been that way. Understand, that's why you are going to heaven if you believe in Jesus. It is so that you will obey Jesus forever. It is so that you will be progressively conformed into His image forever. That's why there's a place prepared for you. It's not the other way around. Now, Please understand, if you have any sense right now, either through doubts or through asserted will, that you are not in Christ, do you want to be welcomed into the kingdom of God at the end of the age? And let me say this to you. Do not worry about being elect. Set that aside. The conditions for entering the joy of the Father is joyful submission to and obedience to Jesus Christ. So, submit yourself to Him and seek Him. And I worked the hardest to craft this next sentence. I spent hours trying to get this right. Multitasking, of course. But I worked a long time to get this right, to say it to you just in this way. If you will but submit yourself to the sanctification of the Spirit and obedience to Jesus then God will take care of electing you. Or maybe even more basic, if you will but humbly and repentantly ask the Lord to give you His Spirit so that you can be sanctified and have a will to obey Jesus, then God the Father will take care of the election and predestination stuff in your case. You can't really force Him to elect you, but that's close enough that from our perspective in time, there's really no difference. In John 3, Jesus says this, or it could actually be John the Evangelist. He who does not believe is already condemned. So from right now, this perspective, this moment in time, if you are not believing in Christ, you're condemned. The verdict has already been rendered. But through trust in Jesus, you reverse that verdict. This is seen also, the the way that God, an eternal being, relates to us in time. He tells Moses his will is condemnation to destroy all the people. Here's what I'm going to do. You stand over there. I'm going to destroy them. I'll start over with you. Moses says, no, don't do that. God knew from before all time that that's exactly how it was going to play out. But Moses had to enter into the intercession for it to be accomplished. So enter in for the intercession of your own soul. Even if God were to say to you right this moment, I have not elected you, you could pray and yearn and desire, God elect me, and his response would be yes. Because that would mean repentance and faith. This is how he deals with us in time. And if that just confused the heck out of all of you, I'm sorry. But turn to Christ. Anyone who comes to Him, He will by no means cast out. Maybe it's helpful for all sides just to consider 
that God the Father's act of electing his chosen people happens outside of time completely. So causal relationships get blurry, but the foundation of it all is his love. Elect for sprinkling with his blood. I think, brothers and sisters, this finally slams the door on the whole fairness discussion. Again, this is not... These aren't some random benefits that God gives to his favorites and doesn't to others. We must consider, what did it cost? What did it cost God to elect his chosen people? It's not just some random act of God. It's not a heavenly lottery or cosmic bingo game. When God the Father elected His people according to His foreknowledge, the death of His Son became inevitable. Do you realize what it cost Him to decide to save you? The Father who owns everything by right lost and gave up more than anyone could ever lose or give up to authorize himself to elect you. Because he chose you, he crushed his son. Because he destined that you would be obedient to Jesus forever, he had to give his son up for slaughter. There's no other way. Our free will got us into this mess. And only love like that, only love like the Father has by the death of His Son, which we were not wise enough, we were not repentant enough to ask for, can get us out of it. The Gospel offer goes to all because anyone who will turn to Christ and believe will be saved. God's election ensures that some will. It is guaranteed. But nonetheless, turn to Christ. and He'll take care of the Lamb's book of life. He knows the end from the beginning, but He is working through our prayers and the moving of His Holy Spirit to bring all His chosen ones in, even in what we would consider to be hopeless cases. The message of the blood of the cross and the shedding of Jesus' blood is the way that people are brought in. The love of God is made manifest and shown to us clearly in the death of His Son, and that is what woos us to Himself and breaks down our rebellion. If your response is, yes, this is true, I want this, That's willing submission to have the blood of Jesus splattered and cast all over you to cover for your sins. There is offense in this passage. There's there's covenant-making language right here. So there's, there's blood that's being sprinkled over the people who are entering the covenant and a commitment of the people to obey Jesus. Both elements essential to any covenant making in the Old Testament. But understand the imagery. This is why the people in John chapter 6 left Jesus. He said, you got to eat my body and drink my blood. And I think they understood what he was saying. And what this text is saying is to be saved, to be 
spared from the wrath of God, you've got to have the blood of Jesus all over you. Or else there's no way to deal with the wrath of God. And that message offends. You are so bad that it took the death of the perfect one, the holy one, the chosen one, Jesus Christ Himself to save you. That's the nature of our rebellion. But if you will willingly embrace His offer, His terms of peace, then it's yours. You understand how this works? That he, he, how this works? That the Spirit is at work right now to try and break down your rejection of this message. I want to end where we started. The priority of love. If this is all true, if this is how God works, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit contriving together to accomplish your salvation, and I've hoped I've helped you see that it is true, not forcing you to agree with every little thing I've said, not answering all the questions. But if this is the case, if, this, if these are the links that God has gone to in order to save us, then how loving a people ought we to be? God has chosen to demonstrate the glory, His glory. The primary way that He has chosen to prove that He is loving is to show His unfathomable and perfect direct love to those who have no right or claim on His love. We all deserved. Our only right before God was a claim on His wrath. You understand? That's fairness in the most ultimate sense. Pure wrath. Nothing but wrath forever. But as James the bold younger brother, half-brother of Jesus says in James 1.18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We should stand in awe of God's own free will, abounding in steadfast love of his own free will. He elected you according to his foreknowledge in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus and for sprinkling with his blood. And therefore, grace and peace are ours and can be multiplied to us. This last little bit in this text is actually a greeting, the standard Christian form of that time, but I think it's intentional that it comes right after a discussion of God's Choosing. So I'm, I'm riffing on it a little bit by connecting it to this doctrine. But God's grace is ours because He who began a work, a good work in us, will bring it to completion at the final day. He will grant you everything you need, all divine help necessary in order to reach the destiny that He has graciously given to you. Adoption as sons for obedience to Jesus Christ. He began it. He will finish it. God's grace is ours because God cares about His glory. As the children of Israel were eventually led safely into the promised land, so you will be brought safely home, being kept by the power of God. Because it's for His name's sake, He will surely accomplish it. God's peace is ours because while we are so fickle and fragile, He is not. His strength and indomitable will has been on our side for our good from before the foundation of the world, brothers and sisters. Do you realize how terrifying it is if it is all up to us? 
Yet we can rest and have peace in our hearts because He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. He is saving you, dear brother and sister. This is the drama that is playing out in your life. His salvation. God's peace is ours because since this is the plan of God, Since it is His will to cover us with the blood of His Son, His wrath has been taken out of the equation towards us. This is His plan to splash that sacred blood of His Son all over you so that all of His wrath towards you is now and forever gone. We weren't wise enough to ask for that. How in the world can we contrive of a plan where that exchange can happen? It's His will to do it. This peace can be ours. God's peace is ours also because since in the plan of God, since this is the plan of God, sorry, since it is His will to cover us with the blood of His Son, His wrath is taken out of the equation towards us. I already read that. God's grace can be multiplied to us because His heart towards us is not up there in heaven waiting us for us to get our act together. He comes to us in our need. This is the way that James encourages people to pray for wisdom. That He gives to all without finding fault. He, doesn't, he, doesn't, he isn't offended by you asking for wisdom because you're foolish when you're asking for wisdom. You're admitting that you need wisdom so He doesn't take offense at you asking for wisdom. This is how it works with His grace. If you acknowledge that you need His grace and you need His Benefits, you need everything from Him that you have no adequacy in yourself. He gives it. The meek shall inherit the earth. The only qualification for grace is acknowledging to the Lord your need of it. God's grace can be multiplied to us because He has chosen to ensure that by the working of the Spirit to sanctify us and unite us to Christ through faith to bless us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Do you know, dear brothers and sisters, that it's already yours? It's already yours. Do you understand what your reward is? It is nothing less than the inheritance and reward that Jesus Christ earned. This amount of grace and blessing is yours now. Time is simply the stretching out of the bestowal of all of God's blessings upon you. And it's going to take eternity for it to finish. God's peace can be multiplied to us because we are liberated to show unfathomable forgiveness Grace, kindness, love, and mercy to others. We can be so, so very secure in God's love. Whether you wake up one day to the next feeling like you're loved by God or not, in love, He predestined you, and nothing can separate you from His love. You don't need security or equity from other people. He is our all in all. 
We find our rest in His embrace and His welcoming of us in His Son, Jesus. And lastly, God's peace can be multiplied to us because He has loved us before the foundation of the world and He loves us now and He will love us forever. Do you think we'll have free will in heaven? I think so, whatever that means. But if that's the case, in our perfect state, how can we be sure that 10 billion years from now we're not going to bungle it up again and plunge the whole thing back into ruin? If even one of us were to slip up, I mean, think of the angels. Like, we don't know how long they were there with God, and then Lucifer decides one day to lead a third of them into damnation. What about us? We, together with the elect angels, will be kept forever by the power of God. Forever. For unending ages, the Spirit will both ensure that even in our restored free will, that none of us will ever sin or ever mess it up. Ever. If that does not cause you to have an increase in peace, I don't know what will. As the old hymn says, this isn't one we sung today, but still good nonetheless. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Let's pray. Father, we are astounded by your love. I pray that we would be evermore just in awe of what you have done. I know that not everything I said a person may want to accept and I may not be right in everything I've said and how it all works together, but I pray that as we try to scratch the surface of the mystery of God, understanding how you have done what you've done, please increase the grace and peace that are already ours in Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.